Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to shout to the back. Good morning, everyone. Come on in. Grab a seat. <laughs> Come on in, folks. Come and join us. We're going to press on. We're going to get stuck straight into it today. We're not going to, we're not going to hold around. So it's a pleasure to be welcoming you to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. My name's David. It's, um, it's nice to be able to be here as a, together again today with we were here together, some of us, yesterday as well, and it was just a, it was a wonderful time. We hope you'll be blessed here in this time in the presence of God and that you'll find peace in this gathering of his people in this time. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your presence here today. May our worship and praise be acceptable to you in this time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to read the passage from Exodus. So it's Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 1 right through to 32. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall, not, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations and as a statute forever. In the first month, 
from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel, Israel went and did so. So the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my, among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said, take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Amen. Duncan. Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, lovely to have you here and lovely to be opening God's Word. Let me encourage you to stay there in Exodus 12. Um, it is printed in the diary if you, if you have that to hand as well. Also, just want to mention a couple of things. First of all, thank you, everybody who came along to the fun day yesterday, and especially a thank you to the many people who put a lot of work in yesterday to make that the fun day that it was advertised to be. So thank you very much. And uh, let me mention also that we meet again tonight at six o'clock. Um, there's only two more evening services left until the summer break, so get in while you can. Tonight we're going to be looking at Habakkuk chapter two. So if that doesn't draw you in, nothing will. Um, six o'clock, we'll be meeting in the atrium. Be lovely to see you. And we do also meet um, for at six o'clock on Wednesday for our tea time at church Bible study. And that's been really quite encouraging these last couple of weeks. This is the last one this week before the summer, and that's at six o'clock. And we still don't have a volunteer to help with teas and coffee, so if you could help with that, please do let me know after the service. So, Exodus chapter 12. You know, there's something powerful about those stories of, um, you know, when adults find themselves in serious danger. Um, perhaps they've taken ill, 
or they've, uh, they've been injured somehow, and they are unable to do something for themselves. And it seems on the face of it that all hope is lost. And then comes help and hope in a surprising way. You know those stories that sometimes come up about how um, a two-year-old managed to have the foresight to phone an ambulance to come and help mum who was seriously ill, or the dog who managed to go and bring someone to the site where his owner has broken his leg and can't move. These are amazing stories of hope that come from unlikely places. And we encounter a surprise like that in Exodus 12. It's hard to find words that would actually describe the scale of the surprise that comes in Exodus 12. Let me try and explain it the long way. This book of the Bible is the story of God rescuing His people from slavery in Egypt. And of course, God is all-powerful. He could wipe Egypt off the face of the map in an instant, if that's what He wanted to do. But God's got other priorities. He acts so that Egypt and indeed the whole world would know that He is the Lord. He displays to the world who He is, what He's like, what His attributes are. And in so doing, He gives the king of Egypt multiple opportunities to submit, to acknowledge the true God and release the Israelites from captivity. And up to this point that we've come to, God has unleashed nine plagues on Egypt, showing His raw power, His absolute dominion over His creation. The gods of Egypt have been shown to be empty imaginary friends, and God is shown to be the one true all-powerful God. And yet, the miraculous displays of who God is has not changed Pharaoh's heart one bit. He remains in rebellion against God. At best, he finds himself trying to negotiate a deal rather than just submitting to God's command. Well, there's one more plague to fall. We saw it threatened last week in chapter 11, the death of the firstborn. Way back at the beginning of this encounter between God and Pharaoh, God told Pharaoh that Israel was his firstborn son and that if the king of Egypt refused to let God's firstborn son go free, then God would take Pharaoh's firstborn son. And it's been a long road, but here we are. We've reached that point. The promise that God makes is that this tenth plague will be different. This time, there will be no role for Moses or Aaron They won't need to raise their hands or have the staff. This time, God says in verse 12 of our passage, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. God Himself, this one who has this raw power, this un- rivaled dominion over his creation, he himself is going to pass through the streets of Egypt. And what a devastating thought that is. What a dangerous thing that is to have this God 
passing through the land of Egypt, coming down your street today, what could possibly keep people safe from him? And here's the surprise. A lamb. This chapter is one that tells us of the saving power of the Lamb. And this is such a monumental chapter in the Bible. So much of the rest of the story of the Bible takes its contours from what you learn in Exodus 12. There's some very important things arrive on the scene for the very first time in Scripture in this chapter. So, if the people of Israel are to be protected from the judgment of God, then they're going to need to listen to God. And we could think, couldn't we, that God really stretches His people here, because the real focus of this chapter is on the Lamb. The judgment that was coming to Egypt's streets was against the firstborn of every family. This is the only one of the plagues that has had a direct demanding of a life. Up until now, anyone who cared to listen to God's Word, they could shelter from the plagues, but not with this one. This is God's judgment that demands by right the firstborn of every family. And for Israel, that's significant for them too because they as a, as a whole nation are a firstborn, God's firstborn. They need to be delivered, not just from the hand of Pharaoh, but even from the hand of their God. And back in chapter 6, this was the promise that God made to the Israelites. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. God said He would deliver them from slavery and He would redeem them. He would purchase them. And this chapter is the decisive moment where that will occur. So, we see here the blood of the Lamb turns away God's judgment. The blood of the Lamb turns away God's judgments. And there's a bit of time describing this Lamb that's needed. What kind of Lamb is it? Well, the language of, of Exodus 12 is very much the language of, of sacrifice. Notice in verse 5, it's to be a Lamb without blemish. It's to be a male that is a year old. A year old means fully grown. God's command is very specific, isn't it? He knows that D-Day is going to be the 14th day of the month. And so, here's the instruction. On the 10th day of the month, carefully select a lamb. And you're going to keep that lamb for four days. And this idea of keeping the lamb is probably, first and foremost, to test it you know, you're able to scrutinize this thing for four days. It's not, it's not sickly, is it? It really is blemish-free. But I must admit, if you just think about a very human element of what it would have meant to bring a lamb into your home, 
and to care for it for four days. What happens to that family when this animal is brought in for four days? Well, it's not long before you see that this animal has got his own character. And you can be sure the kids have given it a name by hour number two. It becomes part of us, doesn't it? it, it it's, it's even becomes one with our family. And that's what makes verse 16 just so harsh. Because on the 14th day, the whole of Israel will kill their lambs at twilight. What a thing to ask them to do. And there's two main things the Israelites are told to do with the lamb here. One is in relation to its blood, and the other is in relation to its flesh. You see, the selection of the lamb is on the basis of, of how much your household could eat. Um, you see verse 4, that there is the possibility that um, a household would be too small for a lamb. Um, looking at the way some people eat, we would maybe need to put it the other way around. But um, that's not even a concept here, that the lamb could be too small. No, the, the, the idea is that the household might be too small for what this lamb could do, and nothing of the lamb is to be wasted, so households are to club together if needs be. And when the animal is killed, it's to be bled, and the blood collected in a basin is to be sprinkled or daubed onto the doorposts and the lintel of the house. And you see in verse 22, again, very specifically using the hyssop plant to do it. Now, here's what I want you to think about. In the previous plagues, what we've seen is that God knows His people. And by that I mean God was able to bring a plague that would fall upon the Egyptians but would not affect His own people. So, we were told in the plague of darkness that the Israelites were in light. We're told that the plague of boils didn't affect the Israelites. The hailstorm never fell in the land where the Israelites were. And so we, you, we can conclude, can't we, that God knows who and where His own people are. And that means that God doesn't need to have blood on the doorposts so that He can be reminded which people are His and which people aren't. Do you see what I mean? He doesn't need this sign to know who His people are. He knows that already. So, it tells us that the slaying of the lamb, the shedding and the sprinkling of its blood actually accomplishes something. It accomplishes something in God's sight. Through the lamb, God is doing what He promised. He's redeeming his people. He's purchasing them. He's paying a price in order to make them his own. And what a lesson this is to learn about what it takes to be right with God. You see, the Israelites were God's people because they had the promises that had come to them from Abraham. But even here, they are still in the possession of Pharaoh. 
And more importantly than that, they are not a perfect people. Even in what you've read already in Exodus, this people, uh, as the message of their rescue has come to them, they haven't always responded to God's servant well. The first sign of difficulty, they were ready to, to cast them out of Egypt. They'd given up all hope. And when you read the, some of the other accounts, someone like Joshua, who was brought up in Egypt at this time, he, during his farewell speech, he reminds them that the previous generation had also worshipped the false gods of Egypt. So how could a people like this ever be right with God? How could they ever truly be His? Well, the answer here is through the Lamb. The Lamb is here seen as being offered as a substitute in the place of each household. And all that detail about what kind of lamb is so important. The spotless lamb. The innocent must take the place of the guilty. This is another one of these areas where in the main we don't really know God all that well. You see, sin is never a small thing to God. His perfect justice and his perfect holiness mean that lawbreakers, those who are defiled by sinful desires and sinful choices, they cannot just glibly become God's mates. That's not how it works. There's a huge compatibility issue there. His holiness will consume what is sinful. It will not make friends with it. God is not just concerned for justice. He is just to the core of His being. That's what He is. And so, for God, sin must always be dealt with. And here, that lesson is, is, is coming through. The spotless Lamb, whose blood is shed in the place of the sinner, God sees that sacrifice and he sees his people claiming the benefits of that sacrifice by placarding the blood on the door frames of their houses. And in God's sight, he says, justice is satisfied. The God who passes through Egypt, he tells them in verse 13, when he sees the blood, he passes over them. He's satisfied with what has been done. So why isn't our response when we read Exodus 12 to all start rearing sheep? So that we have a steady supply of lambs. We're going to need a lot, aren't we? You see, in maths, anytime you're doing maths at any level, whenever you use the equals sign, you are making a bold statement. You're making a statement of fact when you dare to use the equals sign. What you're saying is, when I use this equals sign, what I mean is that everything on this side of the equals sign adds up to everything on this side of the equals sign. They match up. But there's something that doesn't add up in this equation in Exodus 12. How could a lamb be a substitute for a human being. 
How do you put the equal sign between those? that They don't equal one another, do they? And the Bible is clear that there is a distinction. There is a value difference between a human being and an animal. And so what we see in Exodus 12 is not a model for us to follow, but a picture. It's a picture. It's actually an illustration of a principle that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. In fact, looking on at this, and even for these Israelites, it should produce a yearning, a yearning for a true substitute, somebody who you really could put on the other side of that equal sign. Well, about 1,500 years after these events, a man called John the Baptist was calling on the people of Israel to repent and turn back to God. And one day, he saw someone coming into view, and he raised his finger, and he exclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of this in Egypt, while it really was to deliver God's people and make them His, and it really did do that, it was actually a prelude a foreshadowing of the coming of the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We're going to see in a moment how God gives the people instructions for how they are to commemorate this Passover. You know, fresh lambs to be slain every year to remember this. When you come to this side of history after the true Lamb of God has come. And the writer to the Hebrews, looking back on that, he can see the Passover through a different lens. Listen to these words from Hebrews 10. He says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. A once-for-all sacrifice for sins made by Jesus Christ. He is the true Lamb of God. Read the gospel accounts of Jesus, and you will see he is one that is presented to us as spotless in every way. Even his accusers, even those who would condemn him, would say, I can find no fault in this man. And we are reassured that as we read those gospels, he was a man who was tested in his spotlessness. If you like, he had been brought into the home for four days and closely inspected. We're told that Jesus is the one who was tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. He is the one who truly became one of us. God the Son took to Himself a human nature that He might truly call us His brothers and sisters, that He might be a true substitute, not an animal for a human, but a sinless human being in the place of sinful human beings. His blood 
was shed on the cross, and for all who believe in Him, who claim the promises that come with the death of Jesus, they find forgiveness of sins. God looks upon the sacrificial death of His Son, and He is satisfied. I'm here today to tell you that the true Passover lamb has been slain. His blood, if you like, lies in the basin, waiting to be applied. Has it been applied to you? You see, as we stand before God, there is not one of us who can claim to be without sin. We are all guilty before Him. We've not honored Him as we ought. And we too need to be cleansed from our sin. We need to see the demands of God's justice satisfied. And we could never satisfy those. But God has satisfied the demands of His justice. He's provided the Lamb, His own Son. So when we ask, what can wash away my sin? It's right to reply by saying nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Any ideas? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When you go through a significant event, you tend to set your calendar by it. Um, I'll give you some examples. Um, uh, I mark time in a number of different ways. Uh, I mark time according to uh, the time when I became pastor here, almost four years ago. On the other hand, I mark time according to when I became a father, almost eight years ago. I mark time according to when I got married, nearly 12 years ago. I also mark time according to when I first became a Christian, 30 years ago this year. Those moments, and you all have these moments, right? Those things that you mark time by. It's always in your mind how many years it's been since. Those moments are like gateways, aren't they? We walk through those moments, and life on the other side of those moments is not the same as it was before. They mark a new chapter. Something new has begun. And that is exactly how Exodus 12 is introduced for us. This is how it is to be understood by the nation of Israel. Look at how verse 12 opens. This is verse 2. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. God is saying so significant is what's going to take place on Passover night is that you will need to start the calendar all over again. This will become like the first day of your life. This will be the first day of the new year. That's how significant it will be. You will forever reset your calendar according to this. And that's because 
Here in Exodus 12, we see the Lamb is the gateway to new life. The Lamb is the gateway to new life. I don't know if you noticed this as Dave read it for us, but there's something unusual about how these events are recorded. Um, Typically, when you tell a story, you tell the story, don't you? But here in Exodus 12, that's not how it goes. They tell the story and then take a break to something else, then tell the story and take a break to something else. Let me me just show you what I mean. From verse 3 down to verse 13, you have these instructions about what's going to happen in this first Passover in Egypt. And then from verse 14 to verse 20, God then explains to them, well, and, and here in every successive year is how you're going to remember this Passover, you see? So, he talks about what's going to happen here in Egypt and then breaks away to say, and when you get to the promised land, here's how you're going to remember the Passover. And then you come back again to verse 21, and we're back at the first Passover in Egypt. We're thinking about that again. And then verse 24, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. We're again jumping ahead to, and here's how you're going to remember it in the future. Why mix up the story in that way? I don't think this is how we would have retold the story. I mean, this is an exciting story of what God's going to do in Egypt. Why get distracted by reciting the regulations of what you're going to do once you get to the promised land? Surely we can do that later. But it's precisely because of the significance of this event that actually that way of speaking about the Passover makes sense. This night was going to shape the identity of this people for all future generations. Later in the book of Exodus, uh, you come to chapter 29, you would find that there are instructions that God gives for setting apart Aaron and his sons to be priests. And the ritual that's required has an element to it that is almost identical to how the Passover is described. A sacrifice is made, the blood is to be sprinkled on the priests, the sacrifice is to be eaten by these priests, and whatever is left is to be burned up, nothing to be wasted. And you see, in that case, and also here in our chapter this morning, the shedding and the sprinkling of the blood in this way set people apart for God. It, it makes them holy. You know, it, 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 it sets them apart from everyone else. They're, they're dedicated to His service now. That's what this ritual also is saying. And so, the memorial that's spoken about. This life as you've walked through this significant gateway, this new chapter, will mean that there's a new rhythm to the life of the Israelites. And it involves this memorial that would involve slaying a lamb. But the focus in verses 14 down to 20 is on what kind of people the Passover will produce. So, what's described there is a seven-day feast And there is one particular distinctive mark about that seven-day feast that stands out more than any other. Nine times we're told something about leaven or unleavened bread. 
Uh, we don't tend to use that word leaven. So leaven is a, a raising agent that was used to make bread rise. Lots of people do this today. Uh, they would keep a, an, a, an, a part of an old batch of dough, and when they could smell it turning sour, they would mix it in with a new batch, and the leaven, the yeast, if you like, in that old bit of dough would work its way through the new batch. And they were all experts at making sourdough. Wonderful. But they weren't to use your best sourdough recipe when you were remembering the Passover. During the Passover, there was to be no leaven in the bread. And in fact, if you read it there, it was no leaven in your house. You clear the place out. So, eating unleavened bread was to be a reminder that on the night of that first Passover, they didn't have time to leave the bread, the dough to prove. They didn't have time for any of that stuff. They had to eat it with their sandals on, their coats on, ready to go, eat it in a hurry, because Pharaoh was going to chase you out of this place when this plague falls. They ate unleavened bread. There was no time for bread to prove. But this removal of leaven goes even deeper than that, because leaven represented something. It represented corruption. It represented things turning sour. And it later would become a picture of sin. And so, there is a picture in this commemoration that those who find the liberty that comes from the Passover lamb, they find it to be a gateway to a new life, a life not lived in corruption anymore, but lived in purity and in holiness. You see, they had been bought by God now, and that was to bring not just a new calendar, but a new way of living, a life lived in obedience to Him. And this is a lesson that comes to every Christian. If you're able to sit here today and say, yes, I have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, then we praise God for that, don't we? But we were not saved. These Israelites were not saved to then stay in Egypt. They couldn't stay in Egypt. They were saved to come out of Egypt and to be God's people. The Apostle Paul would write this. This is from 1 Corinthians 5. He says, to Christians, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, coming to know Jesus is the gateway to new life, not still lingering in the old life, in malice and evil, as Paul would put it, but instead following Jesus, not still marked out by the old things, by greed or idolatry or disobedience or unforgiveness or sexual immorality, not marked out by those things, but in the new life of joyful obedience to Jesus the life that is, is, is cleansed from the leaven is the one that is a life of honesty, a life of generosity, a life of purity, and above all, a life of faithfulness to Jesus. 
And not because that earns us something with God, but because our lives have been shaped by what God has done for us. There's one other thing to notice about this memorial that will keep on going among the Israelites. And you'll find it in verses 26 and 27. Again, this is the second uh, visit to what you're going to do in the future. And look at, look at what's anticipated here. Verse 26, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. We don't want this to simply stop with us. And isn't that the point here? That what happens in Exodus 12 is not just for that generation who saw it with their own eyes, who marched out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and and on they go. It wasn't just for them. It was for their children and their children's children, and on it goes. The expectation here is that their children who knew nothing of what had taken place in Egypt would look on and say, Mom, why why do we do this? And there's the opportunity, because every generation needed to know that they had been delivered from Egypt, redeemed by God through the slaying of the Lamb. And that comes to us as well. This If you've been blessed to come to know the Lord, it's not just for you. And indeed, you've not just been saved for you. You've been saved for the Lord and saved that you might reach others with that as well. And especially here, we can't overlook it, can we? The responsibility that comes to pass that on to the next generation. These are the most precious things we can share. And I hope it's the case that our children say to us, Mom, Dad, why do we go to church? Why do they take bread and wine and put it at the front of the church? Rather than, Mom and Dad, why are we not going to church this week? That's a trickier one to explain, I think. Why do we sing? Nowhere else I go, really, do we sing. Why do we sing when we go to church? These are wonderful opportunities, aren't they, to to, to impress upon the next generation that this is what the rhythm of life looks like. Why is it wrong that I, that I would tell lies? All of these things we come back to say, well, because we've been saved by the Lamb of God. And that shapes everything of how we live, of how we worship, of the rhythm that we set up to our week. I wonder what it must have been for those Israelites on that Passover night. Um, They they, they say in verse 27, the people bowed their heads and worshipped. What else could they do? What else could they do in response to what they'd heard? God is going to come through. Tonight's the night you're going to be delivered. They took God at His word. They followed His commands. They had applied the blood to the doorframe, and all they could do now 
was trust. Nothing more for them to do. Sacrifice has been made, and God has promised them that's enough. And every year the Passover feast would bring them back again, not just to a history lesson, but to the promises of God. And that's exactly why we keep coming back to share in bread and wine in communion. You know, when the Lord Jesus instituted this feast, the Lord's Supper, it was in the context of a Passover feast, a Passover meal. The Lamb of God has been slain. His body and blood have been given. And to the one who comes in faith, the assurance is that when the Lord passes through the earth in judgment, when He looks at you, He will see the blood of the Lamb and He'll pass over you. He'll say, with that, I am satisfied. And here we are, the the Lamb has been slain, the blood has been applied, and we trust. Nothing more to be done to rescue your soul. Jesus is coming back one day, and with Him will come the judgment. But everything that's needed to secure your soul has been done. And that's why we come together on Sundays. That's why we gather around this table every other Sunday, because we come back not just to a history lesson to say, well, Jesus died on the cross and He rose again from the dead. Wonderful news, but we come back to the promises that come through Him to us, that as we share in this bread, as we drink of this cup, we really are putting our trust in the Lamb of God who was slain once for all, slain for you. If you come to Him in faith, you'll find that the blood moves from the basin on the floor and is applied to you. And you have a mark upon you that God will forever see. 